when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hits. I'm really happy we got the opportunity to replay an old episode from our archive today. Dr. William Franklin. One of the most remarkable men that I've ever met, and I was hugely honoured to have him on the podcast. He was born on the 19th of March, 1912. He died last year. He was 108 years old. Just before his death, I was lucky enough to meet him and learn about an extraordinary life and career. I say extraordinary a lot on this podcast, but this is extraordinary. He was a medic during the Second World War. He was captured at Singapore. He suffered at the hands of his Japanese captors during the rest of the war. He then came back to the UK. He collaborated with Alexander Fleming on penicillin. He experimented on himself, as you'll hear, with almost fatal consequences. He pioneered the daily pollen count, and he treated Saddam Hussein for dodgy lungs. He retired at 65 certainly from his job in the NHS, but he continued to work well past 100. He attended conferences and published articles in journals. As you'll hear in this episode, he was still working on an article just before he died, deep into his 11th decade. We think that made him the oldest working man in British history. But please let me know if you have another candidate. This podcast, it was a long interview. By the way, you'll hear my daughter doing some colouring in the background. Her pen has dropped on the floor occasionally. I thought it was very cool. I took her to meet him. So she was born in 2011 and she was able to hang out, have a few pictures taken and learn some things from a guy who was born before the First World War. Very, very special indeed. If you wish to hear the second episode of this podcast, it's available, like all of our podcasts, on History Hit. TV. It's our digital history channel. You've got podcasts on there. we got TV shows on there. You can watch this interview with Bill Franklin. It was recorded as well. So you can watch the whole thing on historyhit.tv. In this first episode, he talks about life before and during the Second World War. For the Saddam Hussein stuff, you got to head to historyhit.tv. But enjoy this podcast with a very, very special man indeed. Very much missed, Dr. William Franklin. So tell me about this remarkable man that we're about to go and meet. Well, he is actually quite remarkable. 116 years and a half, born 
two and a half years before the outbreak of the First World War, a man who qualified in medicine 10 years before the NHS. So that's 80 years ago. And then who served his country, prisoner of war of the Japanese for three and a half years. On the day before it fell, he made sure many of the nurses actually got out of Singapore onto the safety of a ship. A prisoner for, I say, three and a half years. Then afterwards he came home, put it all behind him, developed a career in medicine. He developed the whole area of clinical allergy. He worked for two years for a gentleman called Sir Alexander Fleming. He developed the pollen count. And more recently, about 40 years ago, he was summoned to Baghdad to treat Saddam Hussein. And he did that a couple of times. And as he said, that gentleman was my most appreciative patient. Where did your relationship with him begin? How did you become his biographer? It all happened about four years ago. I was introduced to him through the then chief executive of the Not Forgotten Association, a charity which was founded in 1919. Pierre Story Pugh introduced me to him. From that, we became friends. And then two years ago, I was asked to do a sort of question and answer session with uh, Dr. Franklin at the Royal College of Surgeons of England. And from that, it snowballed, as you would say. I asked him who was going to write his biography because I knew it had to be written. And he said, you. And that's been the last two and a half years. The biography's called, by the way? It's called From Hell Island to Hay Fever, The Life of Dr. Bill Franklin. And to explain that, Hell Island is the name that they gave to Blanca Matty, which is now you and I know as Sentosa, where more recently Donald Trump met the leader of North Korea. And Hay Fever, of course, Bill has been instrumental in the development of treatment and, and, and prevention of pollen allergies. And talk to me, I mean, one of the most amazing things, of the many remarkable things about this gentleman is that he's continued to work well after his ni- into his 90s, let alone after his 100th birthday, hasn't he? He has indeed. He was last seeing patients, merely in an advisory role, as he will tell us, when he was 105. He has published four peer-reviewed scientific papers since he was 100, and is currently... As we sit here or stand here today, he's working on the next one, which is, again, about one of his real main interests is the development of how someone discovered penicillin, where these moulds were. And he'll tell you that you can find reference to them in the Bible, in the Old Testament. So they've been around a long, long time. So not only is he a veteran of the Second World War, an extraordinary, illustrious medical career, he's probably the oldest person currently still working in the UK. Well, who knows? Let us know. Let Read listeners, let us know if that's true. That may well be the case. Certainly he is Britain's oldest doctor. As I say, he uh, qualified 10 years before the NHS, and people might like to think then he'd heard about penicillin from Alexander Fleming when he was being lectured to him, but it wasn't available. He is the oldest former Eastern prisoner of war. He is probably the oldest former serving officer in the British Army, and certainly he is the oldest f- former serving military doctor. I'm about to go and meet him now. It's always, always interesting to take your advice on, on how to approach veterans of the Far East, because it can be very traumatic talking about their experiences. What, what do, is he willing to share some of those memories? He will, and he will share them graphically. He will tell you, for example, and it is in the book, as he says, when the Kimpati were in the camp, there was the smell of death. Everyone was fearsome of it. He saw people being killed, he saw people being tortured, and he saw people just dying because he could not provide adequate medical treatment because the, the Japanese would not provide the medical supplies that they needed. 
Did he have the Japanese even attempt to work with him, give him any status as a doctor, or is he just, a, just another na- a number, just another prisoner of war? He was treated as an officer by the Japanese. He was singled out, unfortunately, like many of the other officers, to be humiliated by being beaten in front of the men. This is the way in which the Japanese tried to break the structure within the units. And so he suffered. He'll tell you one time he came again very close to death because of uh, a beating from the Japanese. And he is the man who was saved from having to work at the Alexandra um, Military Hospital in Singapore by literally the toss of a coin. And without that toss of a coin, he would have been certainly killed on the 14th of February, 1942. Well, thank goodness that you've been around to to record this story uh, as his biographer. Um, the book, again, is From Hell Island to Hay Fever. Uh, Paul Watkins, thank you very much indeed. Now we're going to go in. So, Dr. Franklin, thank you very much for, for having me to, to sit in your... Well, this is your office as well. It's not just where you live. Yeah, and I sleep here too, of course. Very effective, but you're, because you're still working, aren't you? I'm still working. I'm determined to produce an article when I'm age 106. I've nearly finished writing it, uh, but then, of course, it has to be accepted by a suitable uh, journal and, and so on. But it's very interesting, uh, learning all sorts of new things about famous people that I've been involved with. So, Well, I hope I'm still... Making these shows when I'm 106 years old, that's for sure. So you were born, let's get this clear, when were you born? In 1912, before the First World War. And, and I remember the First World War quite well, and in fact, because my father went away. And what I remember is him coming back, and what a joyful thing was when he came back from France. And, um, and you must have been terribly worried about him. Well, I, I was too young, really, but my... Mother made a terrific fuss and, and so on. Then when, when he was going, he had a, a, a TAB injection, as they, and he went off to Salonika and then uh, Alexander in Egypt. But when he had this injection, uh, this vaccine as a protection, everyone, all the army was having, uh, all the surfaces were having, it caused him a, a temperature and a very sore arm. And I remember... We were allowed to, on a Sunday always to go into the bed with our parents. No, he was really ill, had a sore up. I thought he'd been wounded. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, was he a doctor? In, in... No, 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 he was a vicar of, 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 of a parish. And, but when he married, they, they had their honeymoon in New York, and then he, he started as a vicar at St. Joseph Island in Canada, and he was there for... My, for two years, my two eldest, uh, my, my eldest brother and, and my sister w- were both born in Canada. But then they came back and, uh, to this country and eventually, as I say, finished up in North England near Lake Halfwater. And, and he, did he serve as a padre in the First World War? Yes, he did, yes. And uh, interesting, he had a Sam Brown, which... Uh, I didn't say wear them now, but I was very proud. I took it, took it from him, and I have pictures of me wearing it in uniform. What's happened to it, I don't know. But so his webbing, you you wore his webbing from the First World yeah, War yeah. into the Second World yes, War. Yes, I did. Yeah. And did he did he talk about his experiences in the war? Uh, 
no, almost no, but all I remember when he was in uh, Alexandria and, and Cairo, he sent lovely postcards to us of the Sphinx and the pyramids, and I love these. I still remember them coming, and, and I thought, this, this is marvellous. And why did you join up in well, the Second World War? I thought uh, there was going to be war, and I was doing uh, a locum job um, to, to earn some money, because people don't seem to realise that as far as the national health is concerned that when I qualified um, and I did a job at St Mary's Hospital, uh, you weren't paid anything at all for six months. Um, they gave you a, a bed and, and a room and a telephone, which was always going. So then what did I do? I'd go and do locums and I did a locum in a psychiatric hospital. Um, and I was there for five months and thoroughly enjoyed it. And then I thought, with what was happening politically, there's going to be war. So when September came along, I went back to the, my old army hospital, which I'd done, I'd done previous locums, uh, where they actually paid you a pound a day. And so I arrived there on September the 1st. War started on September the 3rd. And I remember that very well because all the regular doctors and other people all left and I was left on my own with a vast number of beds, an isolation hospital, and I was working 16 hours a day, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. And we had an outbreak of, of um, meningitis, which I, I treated 100 patients with one death, and he, was a, he had an abscess of the brain. And we also had a very rare disease, which is a complication of mumps, amongst the Australians, and they presented with this complaint, which is called encephalitis, but there's no treatment for it at all. We just put them in bed and treated them symptomatically. And I remember a doctor coming in, and he said, well, they present exactly the same way as a meningitis case, which you say is very urgent, and, and you have to sort the sulfonides, which were available then, that these other people, you don't even lumbar puncture and you don't give them any treatment. How do you distinguish them? They're vomiting, they have a high temperature, their neck is back in, uh, because they've got spasm in there. And I said, it's very easy. They're all Australian. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, they're suffering from, uh, from this rare disease of so-called encephalitis, which there's no treatment. And, and, when, did you, and when did you get posted overseas with the army? I, I did one year exactly at, on the sort of Tidbeth, which I, where I had these vast numbers of beds, and there wasn't relief for six months, and it meant that I'd had to do a, go to the isolation hospital uh, at six o'clock in the morning, and still the night's off. However, I was there for one year, and then I went to the Royal Warwickshire Regiment, which is in Warwick, and Monty's regiment, and I had my own hospital there, and it was overstaffed, and I thoroughly enjoyed myself because I could treat quite sick people because it was, it, was, it was possible. And I was exactly one year there, and then at the end of one year, on one day I had three letters, two of them 
tell me to, that I had to go to somewhere else in England. But the other one was that I had to, that I was going to go to the outside. They didn't say exactly where, but I had to have a, a tropical medicine course, which was, I don't know, was it three months? Anyhow, ours was two days long, so that I could recognise easily malaria. And so that's where, so after exactly two years, one year, one year, I was on the way to what I thought was the Middle East. But in fact, when we got to, um, was it Durban, yes, instead of, the, no, when we got to South, to Cape Town, that's right, most of the convoy went to the Middle East and a small group went to Singapore and I was on that group. And you got to Singapore just in time for the Japanese to invade? Well, in fact, it was very interesting, having been bombing of London and, and, and Coventry and, and so on, that when you got to Singapore, all lights are on and there was no sign that there was, that there was a, a war going on anywhere. And this was actually exactly seven days before Pearl Harbor, you know, when war started on that particular Sunday. And so was Singapore quite fun initially? Well, yes, it was. And I, I was taken to the cricket club to show how they'd played there for years and years and years. And Tanglin Club, which was a very snobbish one, but you could go, go there and play tennis. And you just enjoyed yourself. But I still remember the, the day, it was a Sunday at night, the Japanese, besides the Pearl Harbor, they sent, they sent three bombers to Singapore and they all they dropped their bombs, <laughs> ready to say, you know, we've started the war. But one of the bombs, have you ever heard a bomb coming down? No. It's the, I heard this bomb coming down and I thought the plane was overhead. And it was the only time in my whole war experience that, that I very quickly went under my bed just, just, just thinking that it might be hitting me. In fact, it was arrived incredibly close. I was lucky, as it were. But people always ask me, how have I lived so long? And I just say, luck, luck, luck. I've been so near death so many times, but I've almost just escaped, and that's why I'm alive. So the first time you were very near death was in Singapore, on the day, basically on the day of Pearl Harbor. Well, n- no, the night, the before then, when we arrived... On the third day, I and another medical officer were just told to go to an Indian field hospital or something like that. And for three days we were, I mean, I even had a batman. And and, uh, I've never had this before, but he looked, a batman is your personal sort of servant who does everything. And I remember the first evening he came in and he said, I normally undress my officer. Do, do you mind me undoing your trousers and taking them up? I said, yes, I do. Get out. <laughs> Anyhow, then the, uh, an officer came from the headquarters in Singapore and said, you two people uh, must now do some work. And this is just before the war. The war was three days away. I think. And he said, there are two hospitals. One's called Tangling Military Hospital. And it was dermatology and BD. And the other is Queen, uh, is the Alexander Military Hospital, which I always said looks to, looked a little like Buckingham Palace. It was a vast place. It was the main hospital. 
and there you will be in the minor operation uh, room for giving an anesthetic to, to patients. The other one is, is uh, largely skins and tropical ulcers and things like that. And I said, well, I, I'm a very bad anesthetist. I don't want to go there. And I, and I like the uh, skin complaints and things like that. I want to go there. And the other doctor said the same. So what happened? This officer who'd come to tell us where to go put his hand in his pocket, took the coin out and, and said, Franklin, call, as he spun the coin, and it was heads. And so I went where I went. And that doctor that went into the other place was horribly murdered on the 14th of February, 1942. So there's my, on the spin of a coin, that's the first time I had a real narrow escape. And so it went on all my life. So, so I think we're going to call this, so we're going to call this the nine lives yeah. of Dr. Bill Franklin. Yeah. So, so the, the one life is, you're almost, they almost dropped a bomb on you yeah. um, in December 41. I could even say that I, I was born an identical twin, there were twins, and very premature, as I weighed three pounds, one ounce, and my twin brother three pounds, one, one and a half ounce. And my mother didn't even know she was having twins, but here we were very premature, and in those days, the chances of living when you're so premature and so small were small, but I lived, so that's the first time. Okay, so that's, okay, let's count, so we're going to count that one as well. Yeah. So being born yeah. and surviving the first yeah. few days. Then going to the end, going to Singapore, getting bombed by Japanese. Mm-hmm. Then, then tell me about when war. When you arrived in Singapore, did you expect that there would be a war in the Far East against yes, the Japanese? In okay. fact, I did. We, we had an intelligence officer in, even in the first year of the war, uh, uh, and he said that it was quite likely that Japanese would eventually come in. And when they started the war, he said it would be a, a most Peculiar beginning, uh, and almost certainly on a Sunday when they expect so many people to be away. So he was very right. You're listening to Dance Knows History. It's a podcast we recorded a couple of years ago with national treasure, Dr. Bill Franklin. More after this. Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores and follow Japan's journey through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So it didn't come as a complete shock to you that the British Empire was now at war with Japan? No, 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 no. But did their rapid advance surprise you? Yes, uh... Because we can tell that the Japanese were small people, uh, all wore spectacles and so on, and we didn't know anything about their aeroplanes, and our our aeroplanes went up. Theirs were better than ours, and we thought we'd got some really good ones, but to begin with, defending Singapore was an old-fashioned aeroplane, which they stopped using in in England a few months previously, because they they said that, that, and they were training ones in England, got to Singapore and you found that was the first defence, as it were, planes which were too old. <laughs> and, and so did so your, your commanding officers sort of dismissed the Japanese? They just said they were inferior and there's nothing to worry yes, about? Yes, yes, to begin with. And you learned within a few days that this was... Well, you learned from the day that war was declared and when you saw their fighter planes and they, they just were so good... Uh, in, in shooting down our defence of Singapore. It wasn't impregnable, you see, it was very much the same. But so the, the RAF, the, the air force that we had defending Singapore was, was just awful. And as the Japanese then invaded Malaya, did you start having to treat a stream of battlefield casualties? Uh, no, no they, they, they came and took to northern Malaya, and that's quite a long way up and, and so on. Uh, and most of the battle casualties in those days were treated locally. But in fact, the Japanese started advancing. Everyone said there, was, there were no roads and there was one big road. And, if, and before the war, you could buy a bicycle, a rally bicycle, very, very cheaply. And you saw then, at the beginning, even... They got on the one road that was there and they went on bicycles and they, they just used that as a quick means of going down uh, successfully, as it were. And when did, you, when did you actually think, hold on, I might personally be in danger or I'm going to be on the front line? Was it when the, the great battleships were sunk off the coast or was it when the Japanese appeared in front of Singapore Island? They were coming down all the time and I, I thought... Even in the very early days, well, I, I'm good to not get out of this. Oh, really? Uh, oh, yes. It, it was, uh, and we didn't know then some of the atrocities that were happening and, and so on, but even so, everyone was defending. And a lot of civilians were coming down to Singapore. I was offered a lovely car for a nice girl, and she said, you can have it for £100. I said, no, it's no use at all. I'm not going to buy it. So I, I was not gloomy, but factual. Uh, I, they, they just came down and no one stopped them. And then tell me about the, 
the fighting for Singapore itself. And, and at that stage, you must have been treating casualties where they were actually, because the front line was on the island. Yes. Um, there was another thing, you see. The reason they fought so well was that if they died fighting, they went to two layers higher in heaven uh, than, than you can in any other way. And if they were taken prisoners, they wouldn't be allowed to go back to Japan or anything like that. And people don't realize, I mean, how many prisoners did we take in the whole campaign? I mean, uh, well, I know we, we had four Japanese prisoners, and I looked after them in the, in the military hospital, and they didn't want to live. And three of them had, were paratroopers and had been picked up unconscious, and one of them had, had a, a meta. Uh, an officer at close quarters in the jungle, and they both fired a pistol. And this man had a wound which, in fact, had a collapsed lung, and the, the bullet had just hit the edge of his heart, and later it all got infected. So uh, I remember this Japanese, this particular Japanese, who was not one of the paratroopers, he said, uh, you're trying to keep me alive. I don't want to be kept alive. And I said, no, that's my duty. I'll do that. And at the same time, of course, so we took the whole of that campaign, four Japanese prisoners, and they got from that finally got away to uh, Colombo, yes, to Ceylon, Sri Lanka. And uh, I, wished, I wished them well at the time, but I also looked after we had a, a, a terrible super spy that was also in, in, in the jail um, and um, he'd, he'd actually been found guilty of, of spying for the Japanese and he'd been, he'd been under uh, surveillance a year or I think it was more than a year because he was so inefficient in everything he did and they didn't, they wasn't really, he was a uh, well, he wasn't. He was always going from one unit in, in the Indian Army up in the north. What did they do? This, uh, about a year before the war started, they sent him to Japan to learn Japanese. Well, I mean, it's the most ridiculous thing. Here was a man who was considered, was he a spy even then? And what did they do? And what did he, he learned Japanese, but he learned all sorts of other things, how to use cameras, how to use wires, uh, and so on. And so he told the, the Japanese when he got back that every, he, he told them all the strengths of the, we had of the army and the air force and, and the planes, what, how quickly they could go and, and everything. And that's before the repulse or the, the Prince of Wales came along. And I was very worried when, when the Prince of Wales and, and we were doing badly and everything was going wrong, but here were... We were losing in Java and Sumatra and the Pacific. The Japanese were in charge, but here, on the on the papers and everything, as these two battleships, the principals had got all sorts of secret things on them, radar and things which in those days was improper. And they said, if if it was attacked by by a plane, they knew where it was coming from, and so on. And when they act, when they actually were attacked. Uh, the repulse was actually hit by a bomb on the very first three planes that came over, and that and it hit the, uh, the steering, so it was finished. The Prince of Wales was uh, attacked 
from every, every side the planes came in, northeast, southwest, as it were, and torpedo uh, carrying planes, and, and the, some of them you know, crashed. It was a, a, a certain death for them. And it's very interesting because, because in the papers here, when they arrived, these two battleships, they were all there. If they kept quiet about it, well, everyone would have known. Was, I thought that was wrong. And then they went on to this. I'm not sure whether the, the spy that I was involved in gave them, gave them this phony message that, that uh, Captain Phillips, who was in charge of the, of the principals, uh, that a lot of, they were told that a whole lot of Japanese were arriving uh, on, on the, the East Coast uh, in, in Northern Malaya. And that's what they went up without any air force protection and so on. So they went, they went to their doom, as it were, on a phony message. And it's very interesting because I remember reading it, that we, in the end, in that particular episode, we destroyed uh, 34 Japanese planes. Now, I've also read that, that, that when the prisoners of war, in fact, I read, how many planes did they lose? And they said something incredible, 79, I think it was, yes, that's right. 79 planes, and a lot of them had come a very long way, uh, and uh, they ran out of uh, petrol, and that's why they crashed. But they were all willing to, to die for, the, for their emperor, and so on, and that was that. So, so tell me about the fall of Singapore, the fighting, the vicious fighting, just in the hours before, and then the surrender. What do you know about that? What, what could you see going on? Well, the question was, where were the, they were in Johor Bahru, which is the mainland, and, thing, and they had this relatively narrow bit of, of sea to cross to Singapore Island. And where would they come? There was, a, there was this one um, bridge which took all everything Singapore to the, to the mainland. Would they come to one side, of it, this side of it, or the other side of it? And uh, Percival, who was a commanding officer at Fortress, Singapore said that they were going to arrive on that side. In fact, they came on the other side. The interesting thing is that when I was a, actually a prisoner of war, an officer, a Japanese officer came along and he talked to me. And the day before the, they had come over from the mainland onto Singapore Island, he, had, he himself had come over to, to Singapore to see whether they should land where they were intending to. And he did, and he, and he came back again. And all these sort of little things you learned, learned afterwards. And he said, just swamps, and, uh, and he met quite a few drunken troops, but he said, this is the place we're going to go and land. And they, they did that successfully. The British blew up the bridge and so on, but the Japanese, and amazingly, I think it was three or four days, they mended it, and they just came over with with tanks. This is another thing, you see, they had used tanks even in the, in the north of Malaya. Well, there was one very good road from the north right to, to the south, and that's what they used, bicycles and tanks. And we said we couldn't do it. And what, what do you remember of the fighting? Did you witness it, or were you locked away with the casualties? No, neither. I, I, I wasn't a surgeon. I was a physician, and I was looking after theirs people at the time at Tangmin and, and I can't remember what day it was that, uh, but all I knew was that they were very successful having landed in Singapore and uh, doing very, very well and 
finally, they had a, a long distance mortars, and I was at the Tangley Military Hospital, with them, and the mortars could reach us. So the front line of the Japanese was very close to me. And, we find, and I finally left there, but I was in the last lorry that actually left where the lorry came from. But I still remember the driver. He was a local driver, and he didn't have shoes or socks. And because the, the mortars were arriving, were coming on the road that we were on, and you saw just in front of you uh, a sort of a hole up here in the road with some smoke and things. This was a, uh, one of the mortars. And, and it's, we hoped we wouldn't get hit. So he said, instead of going slowly, I'll go fast. It's the most terrifying journey I've ever been. And I still remember seeing his big toe, which you could, on the accelerator, went down as far as it would go. Uh, but we, we bumped back to, and I finished up on right on the sort of far side of Singapore Island and had my own hospital there. And it was in a, it was called Full of the Theatre. It was very like a, a theatre you see in London, and so on, but it was empty. So that's where my patients, the very sick patients, went in, in, in the best seats, as it were. And uh, we survived. I'm going to put that down as another one of your lives. Yeah. So I think we're on th- yes. uh, four so far. Well, it's interesting because my colonel, who was simply marvellous, uh, a regular doctor and so on, he actually, just as I was leaving, uh, was hit in the, in the office. He wasn't going to move. Uh, he, he got in a military crossing uh, previously. Uh, but in fact, he literally lost his head. And it was sort of a sequel to that little story that... His widow, who was in Perth, Australia, wasn't told for a, a year that her husband had been killed and so on, the question of pension. And she, she finally said, I know what I'll do. I'll write to the British Medical Association and the War Office to see if uh, Captain Franklin is still alive and can he remember Colonel Clark, he was called, you see. Because she said in the, in the letters that, that she had received in Perth was so much about me. We would play bridge together and did all sorts of things together. But when he wasn't using his car, he lent it to me and I could use his car and, and go about. Which is, you know, I never met a girl who was willing to do this to a, a lonely captain. This is a silly question, so I apologise, but... When, when your commanding officer is, is, has been decapitated, when you're driving along a road with mortars going off, are you, are you terrified or are you thinking about the job you've got to do? Are you thinking about survival? What's uppermost? What, what was uppermost? I thought this is the most horrible road journey I've ever done, going at nearly 60 miles an hour through all these potholes, and you were very much personally involved and then... I, were you going to reach the, the, the far end and where was it going to be? Tell me about the surrender to the Japanese. When did you hear about it? Well, the, the surrender was on the 15th of February 1942, but by Black Friday, Friday the 13th of February 1942, they'd come all over and they were well through into the middle of Singapore City and they had they were in charge of the reservoirs and the water and so water was getting extremely scarce and got more scarce later on and it's very annoying when you've only got what was in your water bottle and that had to last you for two or three days you could wash your face and then you thought no that must stop 
your hands, no, you drink, what is there? But anyhow, Friday the 13th was, uh, things were more or less all over, but on the 15th, uh, they, the British capitulated and so on. And people, I have to say, that was the day that I was officially, as it were, a prisoner of war. I didn't see a Japanese for, for 15 days. They were quickly, they went on to Sumatra and, and Java and, and so on. And they had no plans, and they didn't realize what was going to happen. They had no plans that they could take 120,000 uh, soldiers and what they were going to do with them. And so they had to make plans there and then. And I was in my Fulton buildings and didn't go out to the, the main camp, which were the Indians, the Australians, and, and, and the British were at Changi, until the, I, it was 14th or 15th day, it was 17 miles. But I don't know where it came from, but I was in a lorry with some sick people. Uh, but earlier on, the, the so-called fighting people had to march these 17 miles, and that wasn't at all pleasant. So I, I was lucky that I got to Changi and so on, and uh, had immediately given a job to uh, to look after the sick and so on. Um, and of course we had a, a lot of very good physicians and surgeons uh, at Changi. And when did it become clear that this was going to be a, a, a pretty brutal uh, experience as a prisoner of war? Well, the, the main thing that happened in the early days, and, and certainly subsequently, we had a, a very, very poor diet. And the main thing that you thought about when you're starving, and this happened very, very quickly, food, 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 uh, and what was going to happen uh, to, to you, uh, and so on. And we didn't hear about all the atrocities on the railway, the, the death railway, which, that's another thing, I was, in fact, down to go on, was it Force F or whatever, they all had uh, letters and 3,000 people who had to suddenly leave and go in this terrible journey up to towards uh, Thailand. But it's only when the people came back from, from down from the railway when, when it was all given up, we heard about all the atrocities. But uh, the other thing is, is if you tried to escape, they said you'd be shot. Uh, although we were in prison, there was nothing to, to stop you trying to escape. And every now and again, I mean, first lot of five people tried to escape. Where were you going to go? Um, you had to cr cross the, the sea into Jehovah's with jungle and tigers and things, and how could you live? Anyhow, they were all shot. Five of them were shot. And then about six months later, another five people from, came. Three of them were shot, and they got through onto the mainland there. But two of them were trying to get back to safety <laughs> in the prison war camp. And one of them was slashed by a Japanese sword. The officers always had their family sword, and, and uh, it left his arm hanging useless with a little bit of skin. And he actually got back, and another one got back. How he got back to, to safety, I don't know. But the Japanese looked upon him as someone that was very, very lucky. And he'd, he'd, he'd done the, the impossible thing, tried to escape. And there was only one answer to that, shoot him. So I'd, I treated him. He, when I got him, he, he couldn't walk, he couldn't do anything. He was just a skeleton. 
But after two months, I finally said, in three days' time, you can go back to your unit, because he could walk then and so on. But what happened? Competing the awful Japanese police. One man came along, and he came along to me, as it were, and, and this man, as I was looking after, and he got hold of the man and he said, go outside and dig your own grave. Well, he was too weak to do that, so, but they had brought a, he had brought with him a, a Sikh. There were six or, or seven Sikhs, little Conovers is Japanese. They were made to dig it. Uh, and then the next thing, the, um, the only thing that was granted that he could have the, uh, the padre for his last you know, few days. So that's how we knew what was happening. The, the policeman said, you got the seven Sikhs, and, and said, no, you can shoot this man. And there was only one bullet in fact which involved his leg, and all the others were missing. And they were asked to, um, to shoot their, uh, their ex-friends uh, and, and so on. And so, so it's a firing squad of his own, his own mates? Yeah, yeah. But uh, the leaves of the Sikhs. So the, the, the competitive man was so, so cross with him, he came up and just shot, shot him in the back of the head with a pistol and, and pushed him into the grave and, and the Sikhs had to fill up the grave and things. So that was, as far as I, very personal as far as I was concerned, because when you've been with a man every day for two months, you get to know them and, and, and so well. And just when he, he's taken from you and just very, very near you, he's shot. These things are, are not very pleasant. Feel the hand of history upon our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Hogan, just a quick message at the end of this podcast. I've got a little tiny favour to ask. If you could go to wherever you get your podcasts, if you could give it a five-star rating, if you could share it, if you could give it a review, I really appreciate that. Then from the comfort of your own homes, you'll be doing me a massive favour. Then more people will listen to the podcast. We can do more and more ambitious things and everything will be awesome. So thank you so much. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.